invite you this morning to open your Bible to the Gospel of Luke as we are coming very, very near. This is um, probably the second to last message that we'll be um, preaching from the Gospel of Luke. And uh, we're coming this morning to the final mandate, is the title of my message this morning, the final mandate as Jesus uh, prepares to, um, to leave the disciples. He's been raised from the dead, and uh, now he's culminating his teaching ministry. And what Luke does here in Luke 24, uh, verses 44 through 49, is uh, Luke takes the, uh, the 40-day ministry of Jesus after his resurrection and before his ascension, and he summarizes that 40-day ministry in these few verses. Uh, we know that Jesus did not uh, walk and talk with the disciples as he had before his death, uh, he did not live with them in the same way. He appeared to them from time to time. We have about 15 uh, reported instances where Jesus appeared, and, and when he would appear to them, he would teach them. And um, two specific things, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures so that they could read uh, Jesus' life and death and resurrection and his redemptive ministry in the pages of Scripture. And one of the fun things to do is read the book of Acts and see how um, often uh, Peter and Paul and Apollos, anyone that's preaching, Stephen, uh, when they preach Jesus, they preach Jesus from the Old Testament. They take the lessons they learned from Jesus and they apply them. They don't just say, we saw this and we heard that. They do say that. But when they're um, specifically proclaiming Jesus, they're doing it from their Bible, from the Old Testament, as Jesus taught them. So the first thing Jesus is doing in this 40-day ministry is teaching them the scriptures uh, concerning himself. And then secondly, and that's what we'll look at this morning, calling them to their mission. Uh, he's specifically uh, teaching them their role in this great drama of redemption, that the script includes them. And that's, uh, again, what we'll be looking at this morning. The theme is uh, to, to be a Christian is to be divinely called uh, to a specific purpose and role in this drama of redemption. To be the church is to be divinely called to a specific purpose and role in this drama of redemption. And so we'll look at that. Let's give our attention to God's Word. Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Then he, that is Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word this morning. Oh God in heaven, thank you that you speak to us in Scripture. And so Lord Jesus, speak to us today. We thank you that the Spirit has been given, that our minds can be opened to understand uh, these things. And Lord, I pray that we would hear the voice of our Savior loud and clear, calling us to join him in the mission of the gospel in the world. We, we pray, Lord, you would um, mold us by your message to us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, this morning as uh, Luke is wrapping up his gospel, Luke wants us to know that the 
The, uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is not the end of the story. Uh, this past, uh, it was in October, Joanne and I had the opportunity to uh, tour the beaches of Normandy, France, where the great Allied invasion had taken place. And uh, just imagine a soldier after that historic day, June 6, 1944, uh, at the end of that day, standing on the beach and turning to his commanding officer and said, well, that was good. Let's go home. Uh, and the officer saying, well, what do you mean? Well, the soldier saying, well, we, we came to invade France, didn't we? And the officer says, yeah, we did. Well, we invaded. Let's go home. Well, it would be foolish, obviously, because the point wasn't the invasion. The point was the conquering of uh, the Third Reich. And that mission had just begun with the invasion. It wasn't over. It was just beginning now in earnest. And in a very similar way, Luke does not end the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ with the death and resurrection of Christ. The final piece of the puzzle is the teaching of Jesus concerning the church's mission going forward. And it's a critical part of the puzzle. All the gospel writers include it in one way or another. The final commission that Jesus gives uh, to the church. Jesus does not say, all right, hang tight. I'm going to go away for a bit. i got to prepare some things. But just keep your head down. Stay out of trouble. I'm coming back as quickly as I can. I'll get you out of here. That's not how the gospel story ends. Jesus says, I'm going to my Father, and it's better that I go to the Father because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who's going to come and empower you for mission. You are going to be my witnesses. You're going to go into the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded to them. You're going to go and proclaim all that I've accomplished for sinners by the mercy and the grace of and power of God. So when Jesus says, stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high, they could, they could ask, well, and, and then what? Well, and then get on with the mission. And that's where we live today, and it's a critical, critical part of the story. In fact, it's so critical, Luke is going to spend a, take a whole other uh, book, the book of Acts, to tell the story of the church doing what Jesus had called it to do. The church fulfilling its part in the drama of redemption. This morning we're going to just follow the text along. Um, some of the things we talked a little about last week, so there'll be a little uh, just reminding you of, uh, of what's going on here. But we're going to look at the mission and then the method and the message and the might. Those are four points this morning. Uh, the mission, the method, the message, and the, the power to accomplish that. Uh, we saw last week that Jesus made a very important point to his disciples. That the reason they have a mission is because uh, God himself in scripture has called them to the mission. Jesus explains, thus it is written. Those are very important words for Jesus. Thus it is written. Written. The Word of God, the Scriptures, was, that was Jesus' script. He wasn't freestyling. He, he only said what the Father gave him to say. And, and so when he combats the devil in the wilderness as he begins his ministry, you remember, uh, every time the devil would tempt him, Jesus would say, well, thus it is written. Thus it is written. The truths about God and about um, what Jesus has come to do. So 
Jesus says here, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day be raised from the dead. It's all in the Bible. It's all in the Old Testament. And it is written that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. We touched on this last week. But Jesus is making the point that the mission of the church, the calling of the disciples, is just as much written as his own death and resurrection. His death and resurrection accomplish uh, the great work of redemption, but now that accomplishment has to be applied. Jesus died for people. He died for sinners from every tongue and tribe and nation. And those sinners need to be told what has happened. The word has to go to them. Calvin says the gospel does not fall like rain from heaven. It has to be delivered by the hands of men. And so that's the calling of the church. It is necessary in order for the great plan and purpose of God to be accomplished. It is written and thus necessary that that uh, work that Christ has accomplished be proclaimed. You see, because it has always been God's grand mission to bless the whole world in his gospel. That goes all the way back, you see, when God promises to Adam and Eve, the father and the mother of, of all the living, promises that he's going to send a someone who's going to come and crush the serpent's head. And then he says to Abraham, when he calls Abraham specifically to follow him, he tells Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Not just your family, Abraham, all the families of the earth. David, when um, he has this great prophetic psalm, Psalm 22, where it begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And David goes on and prophesies in incredible detail the suffering of Christ. But that suffering has a goal, has an end, a telos, a purpose. And, and David ends Psalm 23 with, 22 with these words, verse 27, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of nations shall worship before you. That's why Jesus died, that all the families of the nations shall worship the Lord. Malachi the prophet of God speaks of it, chapter 1, verse 11, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. God is not a tribal deity. Uh, he's not an American God. He's not a Western God. He is the God of all the earth. And it is his purpose, his commitment to gather worshipers to his name from every corner of the globe. It is part of God's great glory. The question is, how is that going to happen? Well, the Old Testament talks about how it's going to happen. If you have your Bible, if, I invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 2. I'm just going to point one place. You can go to many. Isaiah chapter 2. The prophets talk about how this is going to be accomplished. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 3. So we just think about God's, God's purpose. I, I hope this resonates with you. We, we, should, we should be concerned about what God is passionate about. And God is passionate about 
uh, this gospel message going out and nations being gathered in. Look at Isaiah chapter 2, beginning at verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And so God's purpose is that the nations are going to come into uh, the New Jerusalem, which is the church of God, as the word goes forth from Jerusalem. And so that is God's mission, and God, to that mission, God has attached a method. Uh, Jesus clearly says that the, the specific task of the apostles of the church is the proclamation of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. The church has a proclaiming task in the world, making known, announcing, speaking, preaching this incredible truth that God has, uh, the living God who made heaven and earth has not left this world to itself, but that he has intervened in human history. He has sent his own son to be made in our likeness so that we, though we have rebelled against God and are justly worthy of condemnation, God has opened a door where sinners can be forgiven. You see, God, uh, he delights in that message. It is God's glory uh, to save sinners, to show his grace and his justice in the cross of Jesus Christ. And God delights in that message and he is passionate about that message being broadcast as the word, the gospel, is proclaimed. Jesus says, this is, going to, this is going to happen. This is what you've been called to do, to proclaim. The word's going to go forth from Jerusalem. Both literally, the disciples are to wait in Jerusalem until Pentecost, and then from Jerusalem, they're to go to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's going to start in Jerusalem, literally. But also figuratively, as the church is the new Jerusalem and the church has this, this task. Uh, Kevin Young, in his book, What is the Mission of the Church? An excellent book. I highly recommend it to you. DeYoung writes, the mission of the church is to go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit. That's our mission. To go into the world, make disciples by declaring, proclaiming, the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit. This is what Mark. This is how Mark summarizes the commission in his gospel. Mark sixteen fifteen. He Jesus said to them, "Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation." Now, unfortunately, that mission is a mission the church often loses sight of. People talk about mission drift. Where there was once a clear goal, a clear purpose, an end in mind, and yet over time things happen and, and there's mission drift. And other good things start to pop up and, and, and slowly an institution can just kind of go off course. Well, that happens to the church. The devil, you see, has various strategies for silencing uh, the church's 
proclaiming ministry. One way is for the church to forget about the world. For the church just to sort of gather together and enjoy being together and talk to one another and encourage one another. All good, uh, commanded things that we should be doing. Don't neglect gathering together, uh, Paul, uh, the writer to Hebrews will say, particularly as you see the, the, uh, the day approaching. We're, we're commanded to do this, and it's, and it's beautiful. Isn't it great to be part of the family of God, to see people you recognize and then people you don't recognize and get to make, uh, meet new brothers and sisters in Christ and to hear stories of God at work? It's a, it's a magnificent thing. I love getting together on Sundays. But we don't exist, you see, as a church simply to get together, to enjoy coming together and hanging out or, or coming together and, and enjoying the gospel together. We need to do that, but, but that's not the end of it. There, there's a world out there, a, a world full of people who, who simply don't have any idea about the truth of the gospel. They might think they do. They heard about Jesus or they went to church a long time ago, but most people that, that are around us in our neighborhoods think that to be a Christian means you just believe in God and you try to live a good life, and that's about it. And they think, well, I, I believe in God in, in my own way, and I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a basically a good person and doing the best I can, so you do it your way, I'll do it my way. But they don't have any idea about the truth, you see, of, of What's happened to humanity in the fall? They don't have any idea about the wonder of what God has done in, in Jesus Christ. And that's the world where, uh, th that we're called to go to. Acts uh, chapter 17, where Paul is uh, talking about how God has is, is, uh, ordained exactly the time and place for, for your life and my life. God has ordained the neighborhood you live in. He's ordained the place that you work. He's ordained this very time in the history of the world so that uh, we have a specific calling to this time and this place to proclaim the gospel. So one way, you see, the devil gets the church to, to um, off task is to get the church only thinking in terms of what happens in the, in, within the walls of the building or, or within the, the membership of the, of the church itself. And so we forget about the world. The other way that the devil gets the church off task uh, off task, is to, um, is to get the church involved in a, in a whole host of good social causes. You look around the world and you see there's trouble here and there's misery there and there's, there's heartache and hardship over here. And because we see it, people made in the image of God, we care about those things. And we want to alleviate the suffering and the injustice that we see in the world. And, and so people can get very um, enthused about that. And social justice is a big topic in, in the church today. It's an important topic. It's just not the task that God has given to the church as church. And I mean, that's not a hard point to prove. You look at the Apostle Paul. What social initiatives did he take up? What social programs did he begin? There, he didn't. <laughs> he wasn't taking on the Roman Empire. He wasn't, um, he, there was all sorts of, sorts of social injustices taking place. But Paul says, uh, I preach Christ crucified. That's what I do. I resolved to know nothing when, when I was with you except that message. Jesus Christ died for sin. You see, and the reason Paul is committed to that message is because that's the task Jesus gave him. 
We don't get to make up our job description. And Paul is convinced, and the church should be convinced, that when we preach that message, social change happens. Study the history of the church. When the gospel is preached truly, as, uh, as, for what it is, God in heaven willing to forgive sinners through Jesus Christ. When that is preached truly, lives are actually transformed. Society becomes transformed. Social change happens by the power of God as the church stays on task. The best thing the church can do for the world is not imitate uh, some social agency. The best thing the church can do is be the church. Preach the gospel. And let the power of God transform lives. It's, it's, it's so clearly what God has called us to do. And we have a specific message. So we have the great mission of God. We have the specific method of God. And we have a very specific message. Repentance and forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Repentance is the condition. If you go through the book of Acts, and just, if, if you've got a, a Bible study program that uh, you can look all the times repentance shows up, or repent, you'll find that all the, pre- the preaching of the, of, the gospel, uh, of the book of Acts, the preaching is a preaching of repentance. Peter does it in the very first sermon. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Uh, It was the message of Jesus. He preached a message of repentance. It's the message of the apostles. Repentance is a condition. Repentance simply means that we, we need to let people know that there is a God in heaven who is holy and just and good and that we have sinned against him and continue to do so as we serve ourselves and that to come to life is to turn away from self and away from sin and turn to God. That's repentance. It's a turning in your heart and mind Understanding that the way of the transgressor leads to death and condemnation. And that when we repent by the power and the grace of God, we have this wonderful promise of forgiveness. But we cannot separate the two. You cannot preach a message of sort of a bland, general forgiveness that God, um, he's he's a loving God and he cares about you and he forgives you. That is not the message that Jesus called the church to preach. I remember uh, talking to someone who had been years at uh, an emergent church in town and asked that person, how often do you hear the word repentance? And this person said, I don't think I've ever heard it. It's a different message. Repentance is not bad news. Repentance is just uh, the truth, you see. It's accepting and acknowledging the truth that we actually have sinned against the holy God and, and, and that God invites us now to turn to him away from our sin. And the beautiful promise is that God then promises to forgive us. And that is, that is not a little thing. As I'm studying this, I think, you know, we hear that term and we say it, don't we? We, we sort of tack it on to the end of our prayers and forgive us our sins for Jesus' sake, amen. Do you ever stop and, and just ask yourself, what am I asking for? What am I, what am I praying about? What does it mean to be forgiven? Friends, it, it's everything to be forgiven. It, it, 
If you're not forgiven, you're, you're still dead in your sin. If you're not forgiven, you're without God and without hope in the world. If you're not forgiven, you have a few, just a few little years to live in this world, and then you're going to enter eternity without God, and an eternity that includes torment. Jesus talks about a real hell. If you're not forgiven, that's your future. If you're not forgiven, you have not yet really become alive, and you are not ready to die. For those of you who remember back 9-11, one of the things that struck me was the number of reports of people tragically uh, call, making phone calls from the towers and, and, and begging for help and, and saying, I'm not ready to die. I'm not ready to die. It is an awful thing. Can you imagine anything more awful than to be at the point of death and, and realize to your astonishment you're not ready to die? You thought there was time. Of all the things to be unprepared for, friends, death certainly has to be the most foolish thing to be unprepared for because we, we know we, we must die. The death rate is 100%. You and I, we will die. But it's, it's so tragic also because the consequences are eternal. If, you're, if you die unprepared, you don't get a do-over. You don't get a makeup. You spend eternity. You know, R.C. Sproul, who just passed away this past week, his conversion verse was Ecclesiastes. I don't remember the exact reference, but it's Ecclesiastes, which says, where the tree falleth, there let it lie. Not a very popular conversion verse. <laughs> and yet what struck him was that when the tree falls, when someone dies, there it lies. And you're either going to fall this way or that way. You're either going to fall into the arms of eternal blessedness or you're going to fall into the pit of eternal torment. And there's no, there's no undoing it. See, but the, the final reason that being unprepared is so tragic is because preparation is possible. It's, it's possible to be ready to die. Jesus Christ came specifically, you see, to do that, to blow a hole through the pitiless wall of death. I think Keller or, or Lewis, I don't remember which of them says that. But when he died and rose again, he accomplished something, an objective something called redemption. And in Jesus, we, the sinners, can come confessing and actually be forgiven so that sin has no claim on us. Judgment has no charge against us. The law cannot, uh, cannot accuse us. We're forgiven. <laughs> so that Jesus can say, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. It's such a... It's, it's so glorious that God promises I will forgive their transgressions and remember their sins no more. It, it's an amazing thing to be a forgiven person. Forgiven by God himself. That is, there is no other message in the whole world like that. That doesn't just speak a generic kindness, sort of a general favor, a disposition of God, but a promise of God that this legal issue of your offenses against God is resolved in Jesus Christ so that if you come to him in faith, you will be forgiven for once and for all. See, and that becomes the, 
template, the blueprint for the apostles' ministry. Uh, We read some of these verses earlier on in the service. But when Peter begins his ministry at Pentecost, he preaches, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's almost Jesus' words in Luke 24 verbatim. When he preaches his first uh, Gentile sermon, he goes to Cornelius, and Peter's this Jewish man, and yet Cornelius the Gentile, Peter's been said, you got to go there and preach. And, and, And so Peter does, and he says in verse 42 of chapter 10 that Jesus commanded us to preach to people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And to Cornelius and his household, that was great news. They were delighted to hear that message. They rejoiced to hear that message. And we live in a world where many people yawn. Some of you might be yawning this morning. You've heard it so many times. And you know it's true. And you're, you're sure that somewhere in there there's something really good. But it's not, see, it's just not something that's, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like fresh air when you're about ready to be asphyxiated. And it doesn't, so often, right, it just doesn't, it doesn't taste like fresh water when you are dying from thirst. And it should. It's God's message to the world. To you. This is the message that Jesus died and rose again. So we could proclaim this. Paul's first recorded sermon, Acts chapter 13. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. That's the message. Forgiveness of sins. And Jesus then promises a gift to wake people up to the glory of the message and to empower the disciples to preach the message. Verse 49, Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. You see, it's such an essential piece of the puzzle. How, How will we ever actually come to appreciate this message ourselves? If we're dead to it, if we're just numb to it, if we become cynical about it, if it's just, if it's one of the things that's nice, we're happy about it in in some strange way, but what we're really concerned about are are the crises uh, in our life or the issue that we really really want dealt with now. And, And so forgiveness of sin gets pushed back into the back corner of the good news somewhere, See, if, if, that, if that's true of us, then we need the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So that this message becomes this, the central message of the gospel. Becomes glory to us. It becomes the thing that, that we vibrate to. The thing that drives us and moves us. That we're forgiven people. No matter how great our sin no matter how continual our failure, that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just, to forgive us our sin, and we don't bear it anymore. 
So how are we going to believe that really truly, and how are we going to carry that message to the world? Because you see, the truth is, people do not naturally like this message. If you go to work tomorrow and, and you pick out right the sort of the, the known atheist and say, I've got, I have got such good news for you. Jesus died so you can be forgiven. Come back and tell me his response. My guess will be he'll look at you like you're crazy. Um, he'll probably be offended. You see, because uh, it sounds, it sounds when, when we talk like that, it sounds belittling. It sounds disparaging. It sounds like we think people are sinners. That's what it sounds like. It sounds like you think people are bad and that people do bad things. And the fact is most people don't believe that they're bad. And whatever bad things they have done in their past uh, can surely be explained by a bad environment, bad friends, bad day, a bad decision in a moment of weakness, but they're not bad. They're inherently good. I can't tell you how many times people have said uh, in the midst of when, I, when I, you know, we're just talking about the, the common trials and struggles and failures of humanity. And, 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 and if you ask them, well, what's your hope when you stand before God? And they'll say, well, God knows my heart. I know. That's the problem. What will you do about your heart? You're lying, cheating, stealing, lusting, coveting, greedy, selfish, God-hating heart. What will you do about that? You see, forgiveness for most people doesn't interest them because they simply don't see any need for it. It offends them. The whole thing looks absolutely ludicrous to them. It's offensive. And, and so how are you going to deal with that? How are you going to get the family member that you love so dearly and yet is so blind to the gospel? How are you going to get them to accept the truth about what they actually are? You cannot do it. You can't do it. But the Spirit can. And Jesus says in John chapter 16, verse 8, that the Spirit, when he comes, is going to come with conviction. That beautiful ministry of conviction where, where people suddenly wake up to their sin and they wake up to the righteousness of God and the judgment in the hand of Jesus Christ. And now suddenly you have an audience because someone has woken up by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And they sense, I'm not ready to die. I'm not ready to stand before this living God. What must we do to be saved? That's what they said on Pentecost Sunday. As the Holy Spirit fell, don't we need to pray for more people to be asking that question, praying for the Holy Spirit to fall so that our children are asking that question and, and, and our neighbors are asking that question and maybe sometimes we, we ask we, ask ourselves that question over and over as repentance is an ongoing thing. What must we do? We must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Spirit comes, you see, to do what we cannot do, and the Spirit also comes to help us. We're weak. We're weak in our mind. We're weak in our heart. We don't love people very well, and when they ask these, these hard questions about like the, the, the problem of evil and, and um, what about this or what about that, and we just sort of freeze up. How do we get past that? Well, we pray. We pray. 
Jesus says when the Spirit comes, he's going to teach you. He's going to remind you everything I said to you. Have you ever had that experience where um, you prayed, Lord, help me, and then as you were having the conversation, the Lord was bringing, the Spirit was bringing truths to your mind. And you were simply able to engage in a meaningful conversation. You see, friends, Jesus is not surprised by our weakness. He doesn't come to the disciples uh, after What's just happened two days ago, three days ago, they were running for their life. Jesus knows who they are. He's not surprised by their weakness. That's why he says, stay in Jerusalem until the gift that I've promised you comes, until the Father sends the Holy Spirit who will empower you. It's the essential ingredient to the mission. It's the essential ingredient ingredient for Jesus' own ministry. Uh, He begins his ministry by being baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then the Spirit leads him into the wilderness and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, we're told, engages the devil. And then he comes back to the city of Nazareth where he was born and where he was raised and he opens the scroll of Isaiah chapter 61 and he reads, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to anoint the the, the sick, to heal, uh, to anoint the poor, to heal the sick, uh, to set the captives free. And he closes the scroll and he says, this day uh, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And friends, that's the testimony of the church. The Spirit of the Lord is is upon us so that we can proclaim the good news, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to proclaim recovery of sight to the blind, to proclaim liberty to those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We get to do this. We get to do this in the world in which we live. And that's exactly then what you see the church doing in the New Testament. Peter, when he stands up um, to speak in Acts chapter 4, he's in front of the Jewish leaders, the one who put Jesus to death, and we read that Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, preached, proclaimed the truth about Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 4, the church is being persecuted and they get together and they pray and they place where they, uh, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. So what about us? We're the church. We're the same church Jesus is talking about here in Luke chapter 24. We're the same church Luke tells us about in, in the book of Acts. We are the church that's been given the message. We are the church that understands God's great mission. We are the church that realizes God's method. And we're the church that's been given the Holy Spirit, the might. We lack nothing. So what shall we do? Well, we need to, we need to take this on. I don't, I don't think I'm sharing anything that's going to surprise you when I say that Reformed churches are often poor at witness. In terms, of, in terms of going into the world, we, we, we do well at gathering the gathered. We're just not, we're not as good as, as other brothers and sisters in Christ around the world at going into the world and speaking the gospel message. And, and we sort of have accepted that as a casualty of being reformed. Well, that's just, as old Jimmy Swaggart used to say, a lie from the pit of hell not true. Calvin, Farrell, Bruce, uh, I mean, abuser. John Knox. You, you pick the reformer. 
and they're passionate about the mission. Calvin is training young men uh, in his theological seminary to send them back to France so they will die proclaiming the gospel. It's just not true. Calvin says this, when we know God to be our Father, should we not desire that he be known as such by all? And if we do not have this passion that all creatures do him homage, is it not a sign that his glory means little to us? If the gospel be not preached, Jesus Christ is, as it were, still buried. Therefore, let us stand as witnesses and do him this honor and remain steadfast in this wholesome teaching. Let us here observe uh, that St. Paul, he's preaching from uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, that St. Paul condemns our unthankfulness if we be so unfaithful to God as to not bear witness of his gospel, seeing that he has called us to it. To be a Christian is to be divinely called to a specific task, proclaiming the gospel. And we do that as the church. We do that together. We don't all have the same gifts, but we all have the same calling as the church. So how will we do it? Well, let me quickly wrap up. I think we need to start by just saying we're not going to accept negligence. We cannot, we cannot, we cannot listen to Jesus speak to us in this text and say, well, we would like to, but it's just, it's not our thing. It's not what we do. Somehow, some way, together, we have to be convinced this is God's mission for us and then prayerfully say, Lord, help us to grow. And grow both in a conviction that it's required, but, but maybe even more importantly, with a confidence that God will be with us and that the Spirit has been poured out and a sense that we get to do this. If evangelism sounds like this awful, scary burden, then we don't understand it correctly. This is you get to, you get to bring the antibiotic to the person dying of, a, of a, a bacterial disease that's killing them. You get to be the person that comes and presents the cure to people who are dying eternally without God and without Christ. We get to be those people. We get to do this together as a church. It's one of the reasons um, I just encourage you continually invite people to come to worship. Where the gospel is proclaimed and Jesus is made known and, and, the, and, and, and the world gets to see something that they don't see otherwise. They get to see the church just being the church. Normal people who confess their sins and who forgive each other and who love each other and walk together and worship together and cry tears of joy together. There's incredible witnessing power in a normal worship service. Invite your friends. Invite your neighbors. Let God take it from there. It's one of the reasons we want to be committed to church planting. Because, you see, the church as the church, being the church and doing the ministry of the church is, is God's greatest tool for evangelism in the world. And so let's plant churches all over West Michigan. Don't say there are too many churches in West Michigan. Let's leave that to the Lord. Let's plant because we know there are people who do not know Jesus, who are not, uh, do not hear the gospel of Christ. Uh, we, we know that's true in West Michigan. And so let's let's prayerfully move forward, hoping this year to call a guy to come and be a church planter. The um, money has been made available from the denomination, $40,000, from a fund that someone generously just gave the, the, the OPC this fund, and, and we're channeling that towards church planters, mother churches that want to plant daughter churches. And so we can hire a guy to come and work with us for a year, and then we, he can take that year to get to know us, and we get to know him, and he forms a group, and we, we send him out. 
and plant a church. Let's, let's do that together with excitement, with enthusiasm. We get to do this. Let's continue to call each other, to be engaged in mission, to, to have our young people think about the mission field. Young men, I want to charge you specifically. If you look, most of our uh, young people who go on short-term or long-term mission trips are women. Uh, praise God for our young ladies who are willing to sacrifice in that way. Um, we need more young men to be willing to consider short-term or long-term mission just to see if maybe there's something God is calling you to. Uh, some of us are getting up towards retirement age. Uh, let's not assume that our 401k is our sort of life raft into leisure, but maybe it's God putting together your support package so that you can spend uh, those years in, in a meaningful mission in some way, in some place. Let's, let's just pray that the gospel helps mold us as the church. That the mission of God is more consistently and intentionally the mission of your life and my life. That we're, we do ministry together because God himself has called us to it. For his glory, for the saving of the nations, for the magnifying of his name. May God grant it in our day. Amen. Oh, Lord our God, I thank you so much for our Christ, for our Savior Jesus Christ. I thank you for the message that we have in him, that we can be forgiven our sin. Oh, Lord, I, I pray that we receive that today. Some of us walk under clouds of, of guilt and shame and fear because we, at some level, have not received the good news. That though our sins were as scarlet, they've been washed as white as snow. Though they were red like crimson, they are as wool. That you've removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. They do not belong to us anymore, nor we to them. We've been set free. When the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. Lord, I pray that the hearts that need to hear that truth today would receive it. Lord, I pray for those who've maybe never considered their need for forgiveness. That your Holy Spirit would open their eyes to the truth about your holiness and the truth about our offenses against you and the truth about your wonderful gospel where you gave your son to bear our sin and die in our place so that we could be forgiven forever. And Lord, I, I pray that you help us as a church. We want to be faithful. We want God to, to be obedient to the mission you've given to the church. I pray that we would be people who not only believe the gospel, but we speak it. We call people to come and know this Jesus to come and, and worship our God and Father. But Lord, by your Holy Spirit, we pray, you'd give us courage and joy that we would see things in a different light, would not fear the scorn of men. But Lord, we would use our time and our abilities and our resources in every way that we can to engage in this glorious mission you've called us to. And we give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.